that you know the direction to go. The rest of you ought to be turning in your Bibles to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. Everybody's dismissing. I'm going to get a drink of water. Well, I don't know if you guys uh, heard the good news this week. I just, I just, I just heard it myself, as a matter of fact, and that is uh, um, our governor, Governor Ducey. Doug Ducey, as our governor, right, Governor of Arizona. Um, yeah, he just just now proclaimed, made, made a declaration that uh, he is now commuting and, and basically calling back and, and saying that all of your crimes are going to be negated, that he's going to commute the death sentence that was against you. That's pretty good news. He's basically said the that the death sentence for the crimes that you have committed have been commuted and you are no longer responsible for them and that you are free people and that he will not hold you accountable for the crimes that you have committed. That's really good news. Well, is that good news? I don't know. Because a lot of you are saying, well, not really because I never did anything that really warranted a death sentence. And so, no, that's not good news kind of irrelevant news. Now, I don't know. There might be some people in here who that is really good news. You're thinking, I don't know all of your personal lives. Some of you may be even saying, hey, yeah, that's really good news. I did not want the gas chair with lethal injection. I, I didn't want that. There might even be a few of you who are saying, what an arrogant jerk, assuming that I'm some sort of murderer who has committed a crime that needs to be punished by the death, by a death sentence. And now he's coming to me and saying, oh, I'm going to forgive you of the crime that I assume you committed. What an arrogant person that is. We live in a day and age and we live in a culture Where when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ, a great majority of people will look at you and say, that's not good news. And it's not good news because I haven't done anything wrong. I have never committed a crime worthy of eternal judgment, worthy of eternal condemnation, worthy of the eternal fires of hell. And you can tell me all that good news that you want, but it means nothing to me. It is irrelevant news. Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody who says, I've never done anything that really all that wrong? I mean, I may have done a few things wrong, but nothing that warrants eternal damnation. Never have I done anything like that. There may be even a few people who hear the gospel and say, well, what an arrogant position that is to assume that I am such a horrific individual. How dare you judge me like that and tell me that I am such a horrific individual that God would judge me and send me into give me a death sentence. You don't know me. How dare you judge me? 
There might even be a few who would hear that we have offended a holy and just God and say, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And it truly would be good news. It would be good news like a person on death row having their sentence commuted and then being set free. So we come to the Gospel of Luke and we are listening to a sermon. It's actually kind of a sample sermon from John the Baptist. And let me just give you a little bit of review because we broke this sermon up. It's actually, we broke it up into two parts. It was just... There's just too much depth here that would not allow us to handle it all in a single message. And so uh, let's review what we considered last week. This is a gospel message, and and I I need to emphasize that it is a gospel message. Because verse 18 tells us it is the gospel. The John proclaimed the gospel, and gospel is good news. And sometimes we have this idea that a gospel message comes in uh, in a manner that is nice and gentle and doesn't ruffle any feathers. And there may be a place for that. But John preaches the gospel, and when John shares the gospel, it is directed, it is explicit, and oftentimes it is uncomfortable. And he calls people to prepare for the coming Messiah. He tells them this, judgment is here. The axe is already laid at the tree. It is ready to be cut down. Judgment is coming. And in order for you to escape the judgment is coming, you will need to repent. Repentance is necessary for you to escape that coming judgment. And we looked at repentance as being that of a change of direction, not merely a change of mind. That is, the person... uh, Changes their mind about things. Well, such and such is is a wrong action. This action does offend God. But we not only change our mind, but we actually begin to change our direction. And we not only say, yes, it is wrong, but now I'm also actively going to walk in another way and no longer perform those things. And so John said, bring forth fruits of repentance. And he... um, he shared or he showed us the fruits of repentance where if you are in the crowd, he said, listen, if you've got an abundance, share with somebody who's in need. He said, if you're a tax collector, stop being greedy. And if you are a soldier or you are a person in authority, don't abuse your power. These were the fruits of repentance that he shared with the, with the individuals. He also told the people and informed the people and us that religious ritual will not save you. That just coming to me to get dunked into the waters of the Jordan will not save you. This purification rite is in anticipation of the coming Messiah. But if you think for a moment that it will save you from the fires that are to come, you are sorely mistaken. Mere religious rituals such as going to church, getting baptized, taking communion, singing in the music group, preaching a sermon helping in the children's department, none of those things, knowing the catechism, knowing those things, those religious rites will not and cannot save you. And this is what John was getting at. Because people were trusting in their external actions in order for them to be saved. And he's saying, that isn't going to help you. See, because the problem is you're of your father the devil. You are a brood of vipers. What you are going to need is... Uh, need. You need to become non-snakes. You're snakes. You need to become non-snakes. And they often they would say, and so John also then 
says, well, don't think you can count on your father Abraham because Abraham's really not. First of all, God can raise from these stones children of Abraham. That's no big deal. And Jesus later on goes and clarifies that statement by saying, you're not of your father Abraham. If you were of your father of Abraham, you would do what Abraham did, but instead you seek to kill me. You are of your father the devil, which is exactly what John said. You brood of vipers. You are children of snakes. And getting in the water will only make you a wet snake. That's all it does. So religious ritual and ancestry are insufficient to save you. In other words, superficial religion cannot change your nature. And that's the problem with mankind. is isn't that he needs to become a better person. He needs a new nature. And John is saying, listen, as, as important as the, the waters of baptism are, they, that is not what's going to change you. Superficial religion cannot change your nature. And so if you think by going to church or by all of these outward acts and being a nice person saying please and thank you and returning the change when you're over, you know, given too much change at the, at the store, if you think for a moment that will cause your sentence to be commuted, you are sorely mistaken. And John goes on and says that God will forgive you of your sins you need to repent and embrace the Messiah who is to come because the Messiah who is to come will not just dunk you in water. He will give you a new nature and he will and and God will now be your father. So that's just a brief review of where we were last week. Let me tell you where I'm going to go this week. And we're going to see basically three things, uh, four things actually, that um, about John's message. The first thing about John's message is he's going to now point to Jesus. He's saying, listen, I can't do, I can't change your nature. I can put you in water. That's what I can do. There's a lot of things I can do. I can call you to repentance. I can declare to you, make smooth the path. Let the valleys be lifted up and the mountains be brought low. I can tell you all of these things. I can tell you that the Messiah is coming and that you should prepare your way. But there are some things I can't do. Um, but the one who's coming, he's going to do these things. But John is now, his sermon is going to be focused on the person, the ministry of Christ. And he is going to declare to us that, number one, Jesus has a higher position than he does. It's going to be important. Also, that Jesus has a superior ministry. And also then that um, Jesus has greater authority. That is, he has the authority to judge. So that's what he's going to declare about Jesus. And then we're also going to be brought to the, the close of John's ministry in the book of Luke. And I think this is going to be a very significant... Uh, well, I'll, just, I'll leave it there. I think it's significant on John, how John, how Luke has John kind of leave the scene of, of the gospel that he is writing. So... That's where we've been. This is where I hope to go. Let's read our text today and see what God might have in store for us. So Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. Verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand 
to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to this, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. And so, now we are looking at continuation of this message that John the Baptist is preaching, but John spoke in such bold, with such boldness and with uh, such passion. He spoke in a way that people began to wonder whether or not it's John the Messiah. There was a, a great messianic anticipation. There was a messianic fervor during this time. Um, if you go back and you read some of the historical um, accounts of this time, people were looking for Messiah. So the time was right for a Messiah to come. And so now John shows up, he's baptizing people for, um, uh, for, repent, for the repentance of sins, and people begin to wonder whether or not John, maybe John, might be the Messiah. Well, there's a couple of things here that, before we get into uh, points, that we should consider, and that is, first of all, I find it interesting that John's preaching um, prompted people to think about Jesus. And I guess the point of all that is the gospel should point to Christ. And, and John quickly clarifies that I'm not the focus of the gospel. Right? I'm preaching. What I'm preaching is about somebody else. And folks, when we proclaim, our, proclaim the gospel, and Jaime's been, been teaching about evangelism down, downstairs in our, in our morning Bible study, and our evangelism, our proclamation of the good, good news should be pointing people to Christ, not to us or to any other thing. And it's really easy sometimes. Um, I've probably been guilty of it. Perhaps you've been guilty of it. And that is, we share, I see it a lot when we share our testimony, and our testimony says a whole lot about us. Very little about the one who saved us. We kind of put a tag at the end of our testimony. Oh yeah, and then Jesus came along and saved me, and that was really cool. I was this really rotten, nasty, vile human being or whatever. And then, uh, and, and we give all the gory details and we go on and on and on. And then at the end we say, oh yeah, but Jesus saved me. Really cool. I'm not here to make a, you know, to belittle your testimony. I'm just saying our testimonies need to glorify Christ. When we share the gospel, people should know that we are pointing them to Christ. And it is great to tell people, man, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And the reason I see and the reason I'm found is because there is a Savior of all the universe who, is, who has died for our sins and made reconciliation and has commuted the sentence against you. And if you will accept that commutation of your sentence, you will be forgiven of your sins. And so Jesus makes, or John makes much about Jesus, and he quickly clarifies that I'm not the focus of this gospel. In fact, in the rest of the sermon, John focuses on the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. He says, first of all, that Jesus has a higher position than I do. So he says this, he says, I baptize you with water, but there's one mightier than I who is coming. The strap of his sandal I am not worthy to untie. So first of all, John says there's one coming, and he's mightier than I, and that's just really, I just spent a lot of time thinking about what that means. That there's one coming who's mightier than I, and it's easy to see why, of course Jesus is mightier, but, but why would John say that? Because I, I don't know, when I think about John, 
I think about him as a, as a, a person who proclaimed the gospel boldly. But not the real mighty. John never did a miracle. To our knowledge, no recorded miracle. No great thing that God did. It wasn't like he, he changed the course of things. In fact, he kind of came on the scene and went. In what way is John mighty? For him to then to say that Jesus is mightier than I. And I think the idea here is that Jesus has authority that I do not have. Jesus has power that I do not have. The ministry of Jesus is a completely different class than what I'm doing. I'm out here in the wilderness. I'm preparing the way. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. But there is one coming. And he does what I am completely unable and do not have the authority to do. And there was always this Old Testament idea that when Messiah comes, when the Redeemer comes, that he would be a mighty one, that he would be a strong one. We see this in Isaiah 11.2, where we read, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear and of the Lord. And so we see that the Spirit of counsel and might would be upon him. And then in Jeremiah chapter 15, Verse 34, we also see the same idea that when Messiah comes, when the Savior would come, that he would be a mighty one. And in Isaiah chapter 15, verse 34, we read, Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause that he may give rest to the earth, unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. So we see, first of all, John now points to Jesus and he says that he is mightier than I. He is the powerful one. He is the one who has the authority and the power to do what I am completely unable to do. But he also has a higher position than I. And John goes on and says that I'm not, even, I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. You should understand the background here is that this was such a demeaning task that not even a slave was required to untie a sandal strap. So people would, you know, they walked in bare feet or, in, or with sandals and it was dirty. And so oftentimes there would be somebody, usually a servant, who would wash somebody's feet. But to untie the thong of a sandal was even, was seen as so undignified that we wouldn't even make the, the person of the lowest rung of our society do such a thing. And John is saying, I'm not, I'm not even worthy. I, I'm not worthy to be that close to Messiah. He is of a completely different class. I'm not worthy to be so close to Jesus as to even get near him to untie his sandal strap. And so John now highlights that, that vast gulf between us and Jesus. We should note then that Jesus is not our equal and we are not his advisor. So we'll see that Jesus can do what John cannot. And we're at the heart of the message then really comes into this idea that I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. In other words, John has a greater ministry. I'm sorry, Jesus has a greater ministry than John. John's baptism is inferior to the baptism of Jesus. I baptize you with water. There's one coming, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, John can do human tasks. I can dunk you in water. 
But there's one coming, and he will do divine tasks. That is, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So let's talk a little bit about this idea of baptism and of the Holy Spirit. And it's a rather large subject, so I'm just going to deal with it from the aspect of... Uh, from an Old Testament perspective, in anticipation of the work of Messiah. All right. So, what was the idea of when Messiah comes? What was his? What was what was the understanding of Messiah's being indwelt by the Spirit and imparting the Spirit? How was this understood by John's audience? And that's really where we need to go. We need to understand who's, who's John talking to, who's his audience, and then from there we can begin to make application into our lives. First, we must try to understand what did John's hearers think when they heard that there's one coming and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire? What, is that, what does that have to do? So let's talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit, especially from an Old Testament perspective. Because baptism in the Holy Spirit just didn't come about in the New Testament. It has Old Testament precedent. All right? And so the first thing we should note is that people who were listening to John and John himself were had understanding that there was going to come a new covenant, that a new covenant would be made with the people. And the promise of the new covenant would bring about forgiveness of their sins. So at the first so the first kind of background piece of information we need to understand is that they understand that there's going to be a new covenant. And we see this in Jeremiah chapter 31 through um, 31 through 34. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers at the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And so there's this understanding that a new covenant was going to come. And with the new covenant would come a, the promise of forgiveness of sins. That's our first thing. But not only that, but when the new covenant comes, it would be accompanied by the Holy Spirit. So when this new covenant comes, there would be it would be accompanied by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 36 and uh, uh, mainly verse 26. The, the whole passage is, is interesting because uh, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, right? And I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So they knew that there was a new covenant coming. But what good is a new covenant if they don't have the ability to keep it? After all, they already had a perfectly good covenant, and they couldn't keep it. And so with the new covenant would come the Holy Spirit, which would enable them to keep the new covenant that God is going to give them. So a new covenant is coming. It promises the forgiveness of sins. But now, not only will there be a new covenant, but there will be a new spirit put into the heart of those who who follow after it, and it will not be like the old ways. This new spirit will empower, the, the Holy Spirit will empower them to keep this new covenant. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's a new covenant coming. 
This new covenant would be accompanied by the Holy Spirit, which would enable the people to keep the covenant. It wouldn't be like the old one. Not only this, then, but that it would be the Messiah who would be anointed with the Holy Spirit. All right, and we see this. Um, I already read this passage in, in, in Isaiah chapter 11, too. Messiah was the one who was indwelt or possessed by the Holy Spirit. 11, 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. We see this in Isaiah 42, 1 and in Isaiah 61, 1. And so there's going to be a new covenant. There's going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit to enable people to, to keep the covenant. And it is the Messiah who is coming, who possesses the Holy Spirit. And then it is the Messiah who comes, who not only possesses the Holy Spirit, but distributes the Holy Spirit to those who are participants in the new covenant. Are, are you putting all the pieces together? So not only would Messiah possess the Holy Spirit, but he would impart the Holy Spirit as part of the new covenant. And this Holy Spirit would enable people to um, do mighty deeds. And of course, we see that in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. And in that day it shall come to pass, and I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit. And then, of course, we see this uh, confirmed in Luke chapter 24, um, 49. Jesus says this, he says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We know that happened at the day of Pentecost. So let me try to put all of these pieces together, a basic understanding of, uh, of the Messiah's relationship with the Holy Spirit. That there is a new covenant coming. It will be inaugurated by the Messiah. And one of the, the primary aspects of the Messiah and the Holy Spirit is that Messiah will have the Holy Spirit and he will give you the Holy Spirit. And by giving you the Holy Spirit, he will empower you to keep this new covenant, which you are not able to do right now. You will need God's Spirit to do this. All right, so Messiah now is associated with salvation and with the Holy Spirit. So here's a quick summary then. Messiah is coming. And he will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. He will bring forgiveness of sins and he will create in you a new heart. John says, I baptize you with water. He's going to give you new life. I baptize you with water. But when Jesus, when the Messiah comes, he's going to do something completely different. He's going to give you a new heart. He's going to give you forgiveness of sins. He's going to do something that I'm completely and utterly incapable of doing. He will give you new life. He will, it is he then who will change you from serpents to saints. He will change you from being the offspring of the brood of vipers to being sons and daughters of God himself. I can't do that. I can get you wet. I can make you wet snakes. I can prepare you for the one who is coming. But the one who is coming, he does something completely different. And here's what he does. He changes your nature. He puts his spirit in you so that you are no longer snakes, but you are saints and children of the Most High God. That's the one who is coming. Folks, have you experienced the, the promises of the new covenant with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit giving you a new nature? This is what Jesus does. John says, I can't do that. There are some things I can do. And there are important things. But I can't do that. And so, 
I would maintain then that this baptism of the Holy Spirit is a reality for all who are in Christ and it is who are part of the new covenant. If you are part of the new covenant, if you are in Christ, you have experienced then this spirit baptism. All right. So I would maintain um, then that spirit baptism is not a work subsequent to salvation. All right. And I know that that's a very popular view today that you get saved and that at a later point we pray or anoint you with oil or lay hands on you and then you receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit works subsequent to salvation. Um, but it wouldn't fit our text here, nor does it really fit, I think, a, a careful study of Scripture. I know where it comes from. I, I grew up, I, when I got saved, I was part of a, a church that, that held to that. And the more I read Scripture, the more I said, I don't think this is right. I just don't see this. I don't see this anywhere in Scripture. The text you've given me, I, 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 I don't, are unconvincing to me. And so when you enter into salvation, at that moment, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. You are immersed in the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 1, or 1 Corinthians 12. He says, for we were all baptized into one spirit. And this is why there's no command to be baptized in the Spirit. Nowhere does the Bible tell you you must be baptized in the Holy Spirit, nor even seek it. Why? Because it's assumed if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You don't get a portion of the Holy Spirit either. All right? The Holy Spirit's a person. You don't get like, well, we'll give you a little piece of the Holy Spirit, and then later we're going to give you a little bit more. The Holy Spirit's a person. This would be like me marrying my wife, and I get, you know, I don't know, part of her. No, when I got her, I... I don't know, maybe that's not the best way to put it. When I married her, or she married me, I got all of the blessings of my wife. Not, well, we'll give you more later. And this is why I think Peter, uh, I think, yeah, Peter can tell us that we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. You have everything you need for life and godliness. When you are come to salvation, you are given the Spirit of God and you now have everything you need for life and godliness. Nothing lacking. This is what Paul says in Colossians. In him you are complete. I really believe that. That in Christ you are complete. Because you have everything you need. Now the Bible does tell us, actually commands us. It's imperative. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's something different. We won't go into that today. And I truly believe that there is a, a, a filling of the Holy Spirit, which we do experience at various times. And there is a command to be filled. There's never a, a command to be baptized in the Spirit. And because it is assumed that the moment you came to salvation, you were placed in the element of the Holy Spirit. Just like we baptize in water, you're placed in the element of water. Baptized in the Holy Spirit, the element in which you've been placed is now the Holy Spirit. You are in the Holy Spirit. So, that's our, our background. I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I can't do that. He's going to change your nature. He's going to forgive you of your sins. He's going to put a new heart into you, in you. He's going to inaugurate the new covenant. That's something that I don't do. I just point the way to that guy. When he comes, that's what he's going to do. That's kind of cool. 
But John doesn't stop there. He then says, not only is he going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Well, now, there are some interpretive challenges that we encounter when we deal with this idea of he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Here, there are at least four ways of handling this. I'm just going to deal with two of them. You can research the other one by yourself at another time. There's probably more than four. Um, usually when we hit in challenging interpretive matters, there's usually not nice, there's usually a lot of different viewpoints. But here are the two main ones. The first one I will, I will designate as what I'll call the positive-positive understanding of this. The positive-positive approach. That is that the Holy Spirit is a positive and fire is positive. So he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That is, he will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. We all agree that's positive. That's a good thing. That's one thing that we should um, enjoy and look forward to. And that fire, then, is a positive so that fire would be more like the purging um, of impurities in our lives. So he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit, and also he'll baptize you with fire. He'll purge out of you all of the impurities and the wickedness, um, and he will make you righteous. There's a lot of merit to, to this positive, positive approach that Christ would purge impurities from us, and also some of the biblical understanding or some of the biblical support is that when the Holy Spirit did come on the day of Pentecost, it was accompanied by tongues of fire resting resting above each of the individuals. And so the idea then that that was the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, that they received the Holy Spirit and a purging from their impurities. And I think there is some merit to that. And it's certainly true that that's what God does. He does purge us. I just don't think that's what's going on here. And so the next one is, the next interpretive idea is what I'll label the positive-negative viewpoint. And and I tend to lean towards the positive-negative viewpoint, and I'll share why. But this would be then that the Holy Spirit is positive. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit, yay. But he will also then baptize with fire, and fire is negative. That is, it is fires of judgment. That he will come and Jesus will do two things when he arrives. On the positive side, those who repent and turn to him will be immersed in the Holy Spirit and will be given new life. And those who reject him will be subject to the fires of God's wrath. So there is this separating. And and, and we're going to see this idea of separation. Um, One of the reasons I hold this view is because the next verse, the context uh, supports it. But the first one is, first of all, John, when Luke uses this word fire, normally Luke uses fire to have, have having reference to judgment. And so to be consistent with the way Luke uses the word fire, um, if we're consistent and use that here, then we would have to say fires of judgment. And so the remote context would lean us towards this positive, negative idea. But also just look at the next verse. And the next verse to me, the immediate context um, really is the interpretive guide. And the next verse is this, that is, when in his fork is in his hand, clears the threshing floor to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There is this separation, that when Messiah comes, he is going to separate wheat from chaff. Uh, 
wicked from righteous. This is what Jesus does. Is that when he comes, and I know we don't like to think about that. When we think about Jesus, we always think, oh, he's going to come and be nice and kind, and you know, with lamb on his shoulder type thing. But Jesus came, and he came, and he brought salvation, and he brought judgment. So here's the thing, folks. When you share the gospel with somebody, and they mock you and laugh at you, you understand this. They've just brought judgment upon themselves. They will stand before the Lord, and the Lord will say, you heard the gospel. And you've condemned yourself because you've rejected the gospel. I know we don't like to think about that, but Jesus comes. And, and Jesus' ministry was one of separation. I think Jaime brought up this morning, who is my father and my, my, who is my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Who are they? I didn't come to bring peace on this earth. I came to bring a sword. And families will be separated. This is the idea here. So then, there are two sides then to Jesus' appearance. Immersion in the Holy Spirit for salvation and immersion in fire for judgment. So here's the thing, folks. Jesus saves. Jesus judges. And this is John's point. I don't save you and I don't judge you. I do not have the authority to bring you salvation and to give you the Holy Spirit, nor do I have the authority to cast you into the fires of hell. I don't do that. But there is one coming. And when he comes, this is exactly what he's going to do. And we see this then in the next verse, verse 17. His, that is the Messiah's winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. fire. This is an illustration of separation. That is, wheat and chaff, they are separating the, the light kind of hull around the, uh, uh, the wheat and they would throw it up in the air and the heavier wheat would fall to the ground and the chaff would blow away. It was a process of separation. When Messiah comes, he will separate wheat from chaff. That's what he's going to do. All right? And the wheat will be brought into his storehouse and it will, be, it will belong to him and the chaff will blow away and it will be burned up. That's what Messiah is going to do when he comes. We should note here also how John says that he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. This is so important. He will thoroughly clear. There will be nothing left. In other words, there will be nobody left out. You are wheat or you are chaff. There is no kind of wheat-chaff hybrid. All right? You are wheat or you are chaff. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. There is no fence to ride. You are one or the other. I have to ask you, which one are you? Are you wheat or are you chaff? How do you know? Jesus then gives the Holy Spirit and Jesus then also judges mankind. Robert Stein in his very fine commentary on this wrote, um, it's our next slide. I think I put a quote up. There it is. The Messianic age, therefore, is seen as twofold in nature. It brings the blessing of the Spirit to the repentant, but the fires of judgment to the unrepentant. And this is what Jesus does. Let me ask you, do you consider this good news? Confronts us with the reality then that our sentence needs to be commuted. And some may be sitting here today, I still don't think I've done anything worth God's eternal judgment. Jesus comes for two purposes. To fill you with his Holy Spirit.
Spirit and bring you into his household or you will be burned up like chaff. And there is no middle ground. If you think you've worked out a side deal with the Lord, you are mistaken. There are no side deals. There is one deal, and it is the cross of Jesus Christ, and that's the only deal that is on the table. And I find this interesting then that Luke calls this the gospel because usually when we talk about things of judgment, we don't think of that as good news. But Luke seems to consider this is the gospel because the gospel tells us that there is a Savior who is going to save you from the fires to come. It would be bad news if there was no Savior. It would be bad news if there was just chaff that's going to get burned up. But there isn't just chaff that's going to get burned up. There's wheat, and there is the Holy Spirit, and there is Jesus who gives the Holy Spirit and brings us into his covenant relationship with him. And as the, the text said, and you will be, I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's the good news, and you can have that. So, this is good news. Well, I want to talk real quickly then about how Luke concludes this, this sermon. And he says, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been Reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that he had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. I think that's a really interesting phrasing. In other words, Herod did all these terrible, horrible things. Then he added to them. And what was the addition? He imprisoned John. Almost like, all of these wicked things were really wicked. But the epitome of his wickedness was imprisoning John. He added to his wickedness. And this fits our theme of, of how the gospel divides, how the gospel separates. I want you to see that this is very fitting with the whole message that John has been preaching, that there is this idea of separation. When Messiah comes, there will be separating. Because Herod heard John's preaching and had him arrested. And I find that so such an interesting contrast between the crowds. Remember, the crowds came out to him and he was baptizing them and calling them to repent. And what did they say? What shall we do? Tax collectors, what shall we do? Soldiers, what shall we do? John told them, this is what you need to do. Herod hears the same preaching and he says, kill him. Do you see the separation? Do you see the distinction? The God, same gospel. The gospel goes out to the crowd. Repent and turn from your sins. And the crowd says, what shall we do? And John gives them the good news. Herod hears, repent and turn from your sins. And he says, lock the man up and kill him. Here's the reality, folks. When we share the gospel, don't be surprised when you encounter one of those two positions. What shall we do? Or I want to have nothing to do with you. You are a judgmental, bigoted idiot who deserves nothing but the worst. Why? Because men love the darkness. Light has come to the world and the men love the darkness. I was at a uh, lecture a while back um, in Phoenix, a very prominent speaker. And somebody during the question and answer time says, well, we just really need to make sure that when we, when we talk about Jesus and God, we just really need to make sure that we don't offend anybody. All right? And we don't offend. I know what the person was saying. All right? I understand that we, we, we don't want to necessarily be offensive. 
But as we said before, the gospel is offensive. So if you tell, I don't care if you say it as gently as you can say it, and as kindly and as compassionately and as empathetically as you can say it, if you say it accurately, if it is the gospel that you present, it will be despised because men love the darkness. That's the bottom line. It's almost like if I change my methodology, people would accept what I have to say. That's a complete, absolute untruth. John is a bold, blunt, uncompromising individual, and people repented of their sins. And they killed him, too. Okay, we forgot about that. But I don't care, because it's, it's, it's not our methodology. It's not our tone of voice. That makes the gospel offensive. It is offensive because it confronts people with their sins. It says, you are a murderer and deserve death. That's what it says. You are a murderer and deserve I'm no murderer. I may have gone over the speed limit once or twice. But I am no murderer. No, the gospel says that you have received a death sentence. But the good news is not the governor, but the Lord of the universe has offered to commute that sentence for you. That's the good news. And they'll sit there, but I'm no murderer. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I'm not that bad of a person. And you can say that as kindly and nicely, but you've got to realize, you know, really you are, and I'll be nice about it, and I'll bake you cookies and all of these things. It doesn't change the fact that people will reject it, not because of the way it's presented, but because it confronts them in their sin. And mankind loves their sin above all. People hate the gospel because they love their sin. And so, this is John. John comes in and he presents the gospel in a very blunt and direct way. And some people say, what shall we do? And others say, kill him. I'll close with this then. We are called to boldly declare the gospel. This does not mean we need to be rude or mean or anything like that. main thing is just don't be, be truthful. Be truthful. Sometimes there's a place for a bold, brash, direct, uncompromising. Sometimes, you know what, we've got to be a little more gentle. Spirit of God will show you how to do it. We are to boldly declare the gospel. The gospel we declare should exalt Jesus Christ. It should glorify Christ. John's preaching here glorifies Christ. He does what I can't do. There's some things I can do. I can call you to repent. I can tell you what it means to repent. I can baptize you in the water, but I cannot change your nature. But Jesus will change your nature. He will give you a new life. He will forgive you of your sins. And He will transform you from the inside out. When we boldly declare the gospel, we make much of Jesus. But we also then are clear that rejection of of Jesus' work will bring eternal judgment. And there will be a response. Some people will respond, well, then what shall we do? Praise God when those opportunities come up. What should I do then? And you can lead them and share with them what it means to walk in Christ. And then there will some, some who will just look at you like you're out of it and others who will say, well, how dare you be such a judgmental bigot? Either one of those, one's passive and one's aggressive, but both are a rejection of the gospel and they will bring the fires of judgment. 
So we boldly declare the gospel. We realize that the gospel divides. Jesus divides because it calls us to repent of our sins. We should do so in a way that glorifies him. A way that makes much of Christ and little of us. So let's stand and let's pray. Father, you've given us so many good things. We thank you for the gospel that saves. We thank you that um, it is the gospel that saves. Not our great reasoning or our apologetic. Not our logical, well-ordered arguments. It is the gospel that saves. Help us, Father God, to be faithful to the gospel to save. I pray, Father God, that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so I pray, gracious Lord, that you would open hearts in this church. There are people here who have never called upon Christ for the forgiveness of sins, with resulting being immersed or placed in the Holy Spirit, I pray that that would happen today. Pray that they would not face the fires of judgment, even for another day. That this would be the day where the Spirit comes upon them, they're forgiven for their sins, and that God is their God, and they are His child, and they retain a, they, they obtain a new nature. fully forgiven, fully a child of God. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.